listening to Wake Up and Read the Labels, your guide to eating simple and feeling good. If you want to eat clean and feel your best, guess what? You're in the right place. Each week, we talk about ingredients that may be holding you back from feeling your best. We also talk to some brands that are going against the grain and actually using real ingredients we can recognize. Plus, we're sharing stories with people who are just like you, who actually woke up and read the labels. Welcome to Wake Up and Read the Labels podcast, where we're helping the world wake up and read the labels so they can feel their best. Today, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Jody Stanislaw, who from her 40 years of personal and 10 years of professional experience with type 1 diabetes, she teaches life-changing information about how to successfully manage type 1 that standard medical care often leaves out. Welcome, Jody. How are you? Thanks, Jen. Happy to be here. I always call you Jody. Should I be calling you Dr. Stanislaw? Most people call me Dr. Jody. Okay. We're going with Dr. Jody. Okay, Dr. Jody, tell us about your childhood and how that shaped your work today and how it guides you to become an expert yeah. over the years. So type one, just for clarification, is an autoimmune disease. It's not a lifestyle related disease. The why you get it is not clearly well understood. I mean, we could have a whole other podcast on that, on theories. So I was a normal child running around, being very active. And suddenly one day I got super sick, massively thirsty, losing weight, wetting my bed, hungry. And those are all the classic symptoms of when your body stops making insulin and your blood sugar goes through the roof. I was probably, who knows, six, seven, eight hundred, you know, and a normal blood sugar is like 70 to 120. And so I was immediately put in the hospital for a week, which is actually, it was a Seattle Children's Hospital. And I had so much fun there that I actually decided to be a doctor that week when I was seven. And I then was sent home with a whole bunch of food books and nutrition books. And I had to weigh and measure all of my food. I wasn't allowed to have anything with sugar in it, but twice a week max. I had to start doing insulin injections and, and all that good stuff. So I've been taking care of my diabetes now for 43 years and people need a lot of help. Type one is actually quite a lot of work to constantly balance your blood sugar all day long when the body itself doesn't make insulin. And so I have a virtual practice now where I help people with type one diabetes all around the world better manage their insulin dosing and their blood sugars. So you explain type one and type two, the differences. I don't know if you want to dive into that a little deeper, but for those listening, type two is something that can kind of be, from my understanding, get diagnosed at any age and potentially can be curable through food, whereas type one is autoimmune and it cannot not be curable through food? No, it cannot. We haven't figured out how to stop the autoimmune attack on the beta cells. The beta cells are what are in the pancreas and they make insulin. And, you know, we haven't figured out how to cure rheumatoid arthritis. We haven't figured out how to cure MS, lupus, all these diseases that are caused by the immune system literally attacking self. So there's different stages of type 1. There's actually all ages getting type 1 these days, even 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, and 6-year-olds getting type 1. So all autoimmune diseases are on the rise. The theory is, you know, just more and more environmental triggers, more and more things weakening and, and stressing out the immune system. So if you don't make insulin, we haven't figured out how to make it come back. So my body hasn't made insulin. Perhaps there's a one, two, three percent, 
you know, there's, there are studies that show cadavers of type ones do have some insulin staining in their pancreas, but the understanding is that the immune system is constantly or swiftly attacking the insulin production. And no matter how healthy I eat or how much I exercise, we haven't figured out how to stop that. So any ages now are getting type one and any ages are actually getting type two. Interesting. And type two does not have an autoimmune component at all. Mm-hmm. If it does, then it's not type two. It's type one. Okay. So type two is more driven by diet, you feel like? Yeah. I actually think it's disempowering to call it a disease mm-hmm. because it sounds like you got a disease. It primarily, not all cases, but primarily is driven by poor lifestyle choices, poor dietary choices, obesity, not exercising, basically not taking care of this vessel, mm-hmm. right? Everything we buy comes with a manual. And yet the manual of the body includes healthy food and exercise. And if you don't follow those things, disorder happens like high blood sugars, right? So in type two, the body is so tired of making insulin because it's kind of like anything you overuse in the body, it's going to wear out. And every time you eat, your body has to make insulin. Insulin's job is the glucose from your meal. And it doesn't matter if it's a candy bar or a banana or a potato or rice or noodles, or cake, carbs are carbs are carbs, and all carbs eventually break down into glucose. Obviously, we can just, just I'm sure you have on your podcast plenty of times about what are good carbs and bad carbs, but uh-huh. regardless, all carbs turn into glucose. Glucose gets into the bloodstream, and the way to get glucose out of the bloodstream is with insulin. So insulin is like a pickup truck. Its job is to pick up glucose out of the blood and feed it to the cells. And so there's two points of pathology in a type 2. Number one, the body is basically just tired of making insulin. It's just worn out. It's like, I cannot make enough insulin anymore to take all the sugar that you put into your bloodstream out. And so the beta cells get weak and they can't make enough insulin to keep up with the glucose intake. And the second pathology is actually at the cellular level. Insulin is like a key. And at the cells, there's a keyhole. And the insulin has to fit into the keyhole to open up the cell to allow the cell to take in glucose. Well, guess what? The keyholes also get worn out. And they're basically receptors, cell site receptors. And the receptors are constantly coming up to the surface, letting insulin bind to them. That opens up the cell, allows glucose in. Then the receptor comes back up to the surface, insulin binds to it, and the receptors get tired. And so you're not making enough insulin to take the glucose out. And even if you are, the cells are sick and tired of opening up their keyhole to bring it in. So those things happen over years and years and years. Overuse injuries don't happen overnight, right? They are from years of... And so the symptoms in type 2 come on very slowly. But if you stop overstressing the system right? Let's not keep putting so much glucose in the body. Let's give the beta cells a break. Let's give the cell keyholes a break. You, I mean, that's why reversing type two is there's millions of books on it. It's totally possible. Uh It's a condition more than a disease in my opinion. Yeah. So speaking of, I know a lot of people who may not have type one could be concerned that they potentially, you know, could be on the trajectory for type two. Is all glucose like created equal or are all carbs the same? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. First of all, there's whole food and then there's synthetic food, right? I don't even call synthetic food food. I call it a product, right? All the candy bars and things like that, those don't grow in nature. 
potatoes grow in nature, black beans grow in nature, apples grow in nature. So obviously nature-based carbs, I'm sure your and my strong, strong preference of where we can get our carbs from. Mm-hmm. And so then if we're just looking at the nature-based carbs, they're still high glycemic and low glycemic, which refers to how quickly that food turns into glucose molecules. Like when you chew an apple and it gets digested, does it suddenly, you know, put a whole bunch of glucose molecules in your blood versus slowly? So for example, an apple and blueberries are fruits I eat often because they actually are very slow at digesting, turning into glucose, and the glucose going into the bloodstream. However, there's things like bananas, mangoes, pineapple, high glycemic that I pretty much never, I never do juice. I never do high glycemic fruits. I never do white rice. So first of all, my preference obviously is choose nature-based carbs. Don't even go with the products. Mm -hmm. And then if you're worried about blood sugar problems, and you can easily Google what are low glycemic foods or what are high glycemic foods, and you'll see they're literally rated on how quickly they raise blood sugar. Yeah. What if someone is eating, say, higher glycemic foods, how do they know, like what symptoms are they looking for that, hey, look, you're probably eating the wrong things. That's why you're feeling the way you do. And this Mm -hmm. is an indication that these foods are high glycemic. Well, ideally, I'd love to see the whole world wear continuous glucose monitors. (laughs) <laughs> ah, okay. That was my next question I was going into. Yeah. Like, even if you don't have diabetes, it's advantageous to yeah. wear a glucose monitor. Yes. They're so amazing. Because your body may react to mango different than my body, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because some people have a really strong, robust insulin production capacity, and some people don't. And you don't really know that. Yep. And of course, it weakens in everybody over a lifetime. I mean, just like everything gets worn out through your life. But there's so many people with blood sugar issues and they the symptoms aren't intense yet. It might take five or 10 years. But, you know, sometimes you can feel a sugar rush. You know, you feel either energized, which might feel really good. But perhaps an hour or two later, now you're like wanting to take a nap or you're irritable or you're hungry again. You know, that's kind of the blood sugar roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Maybe every time you eat sugar, you actually do feel really good. But which is unfortunate because, you know, you might want to keep going. But what you should really look at is a broader view. And are you on a roller coaster of energy? You know, does it drop you a couple hours later? But if you can't get a continuous glucose monitor, you could definitely get just a blood glucose monitor where you poke your finger and put your blood on a little strip and put it in a little meter, and then it gives you the reading. So there's a lot of different companies out there that are providing continuous glucose monitors now, but sometimes it's a little tricky. The main one that, of course, I use for my patients is prescription only, and you have to be insulin injecting. But I know that there's a lot of other companies now that are making them available to the public. So yeah, I used to have a code. I don't know if it still works, but it was with NutriSense. And Mm -hmm. I've tried it myself. I've done them and another brand. Both were the same, but basically for anyone listening, it's this little tiny, tiny needle, doesn't feel like anything. You wear it on your arm for about two weeks, you download an app, you basically scan it right after you finish your meal or really any time of the day or night, and it shows you exactly where your blood sugar is. And what's happening is it's helping you create a more personalized diet 
because the objective is to keep your blood sugar more stable. When your blood sugar is stable, you're not hungry, you're not tired, you're less likely to get wrinkles, you're less likely to wind up with type 2 diabetes, all these things. So it is advantageous to figure out exactly how you're reacting to the foods you're eating and what your blood sugar is doing. With that being said, does when we eat food, does that kind of change how the glucose acts? Well, it's an interesting question. What's more evident or in the research is the order in which you eat your food. So that was my next question. (laughs) Anytime you eat on an empty stomach, the worst thing you could do is, well, I mean, from my type one diabetes perspective, maybe if you have super robust beta cells, yeah, if you have high glycemic on an empty stomach, because you can slow down a high glycemic food by mixing it with protein and fat. Mm-hmm. But the order also matters. So if you had rice and then chicken and then broccoli and you ate all that white rice first and then you ate your chicken and then you ate your broccoli, you will spike much faster than if you started with the broccoli, put a bunch of fiber in there, then have the protein, put a bunch of protein in there and then have the rice. Your post-meal blood sugar will actually be much lower. And my analogy is to make this really hit home is how quickly will the kids get to the rides if you put all the kids in the front of the line of Disneyland when it opens in the morning versus all the parents in the front, right? So by putting the parents in the front, you slow down that spike, if you will, Uh of kids, of glucose, and it'll still get there. It all gets there. It doesn't like not get there, but the body only has so many resources to digest at any one time. And frankly, if you only have so many resources, it literally cannot digest all the carbs all at once. It takes a while to digest, right? We sit there after a big meal and we're like, oh, I'm full. But you know, an hour later, you're not. But you mm-hmm. had to wait that time because only so much food can get through at one time. So you're actually benefiting your blood sugar by mixing your carbs with protein and fat because you're, you're not just giving a main line of glucose into the body. Yeah. And I usually tell my clients, like, start with your vegetable, your greens, yeah. then follow up with protein and finish with their starch, whether yeah. it's potatoes, sweet potatoes, pasta, rice, bread, something like that. How do you feel about vinegar helping to lower spikes? That's been in the research. If you do like a tablespoon of vinegar at the mm-hmm. start of your meal and a little bit of water, in my world, a 10 or 20 point reduction is... I don't know. I'm not motivated enough to drink vinegar that often. Yeah. You know, when you don't make insulin, I can eat an apple and go up a hundred points. I mean, it's mm-hmm. very volatile when you don't have your own insulin production. So maybe this sounds lazy, but I'm just trying to stay between 70 and 120 the majority of my life. I often go up to 140 or 150 after my meals, and then I'll go on a walk to bring it down. It's something in the diabetes world, it's something out there, but. I don't feel like the results are that dramatic okay. to do it. But yes, you can definitely experiment with it. And it works in many people like drinking. I don't remember the mechanism, mm-hmm. but there must be something involved in slowing down the digestive enzymes or some. I don't know. I don't even know if that's right. I apologize. I don't know the science behind it. <laughs> that's okay. I always tell my clients like, hey, if, if you're at a restaurant, then get a salad with vinegar and try to eat that before your meal. And that can oftentimes help curb your hunger cravings and help Mm. the blood sugar spike. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It certainly can't hurt, right? It can only help. 
Yes. So back to, since you're the expert on type 1 diabetes, what about exercising with type 1 diabetes? Can that raise your blood sugar? Well, that's an interesting question. First of all, I encourage everybody to exercise, especially people with diabetes, because we have a condition, you know, that can not be ideal for the body. As hard as I work, I still don't have perfect blood sugars. It's just, and I've had it not to mention for 43 years. And the first several decades were probably not great to my body. So exercise is one of the best, you know, fountains of youth that we have that's available to all of us anytime, any day. And there are so many wide reaching benefits of exercise. You know, our body, again, that manual, right? How to take care of the body, exercise, right? If you're not exercising, you are not optimizing the health of your body. It's just impossible. The body's meant to move. So having said that, yes, there are some exercises that can raise your blood sugar. For example, uh, high intensity impact, those HIIT workouts or CrossFit workouts or really intense anaerobic weightlifting. There is a stress response to that. I mean, you're stressing the body. We generally think of stressing the body as a negative thing, but in this case, it's a positive stress. However, the body still feels the need to, quote, help you have some extra fuel for your stressful event. So it does tell the liver to secrete some glucose into the bloodstream to help you, quote, fuel your event. Now, in a non-diabetic, your blood sugar should not actually rise above 120, 140, 150, something like that. In a type 1, though, we don't have anything to counteract that rise, right? If your blood sugar starts going up, your body makes insulin and it makes sure you stay in range. So my patients might have to dose just a little bit of insulin to actually get that glucose into the cells and not having it just circulate in the blood. It's not feeding anything in the bloodstream. We don't want a bunch of glucose in the bloodstream. That's not where our cellular, you know, activity is. We don't need to feed our bloodstream. We need to feed our cells. So we need to get that sugar in the blood out of the blood into the cells. So all my patients have continuous glucose monitors. Mm -hmm. And so if they do start seeing that spike, I do just have them dose just a tiny bit of insulin. And it's a lot more complicated. There's after effects and what to eat and what not to eat, things like that. But I would never tell somebody not to work out because of blood sugar spike from an exercise. The overarching benefits of exercise are always a win. Okay. So how do you recommend someone to stay positive and avoid burnout with type 1 diabetes? (laughs) Well, you should join my monthly program. I go live on Zoom with my patients once a week for that very reason, to share stories, to answer questions, to keep our, you know, mindset positive. It takes a lot of support. Yeah. It's something that never stops, right? I've been looking at my blood sugar and managing what I eat for 43 years on a daily basis, no matter where in the world I am. And also while I sleep, you know, I shared a hotel room with a girlfriend not too long ago and my blood sugar thing was beeping at me as I sleep. And this is a friend I've had for 20 years. And she mm-hmm. goes, oh my gosh, I guess it's just never dawned on me that you actually have to keep managing your blood sugar as you sleep. And I said, yeah, it never stops. And, you know, you don't just eat an apple randomly. You don't just have a latte randomly. You don't just accept, you know, food randomly. You, you can't randomly eat. You have to be constantly assessing what is this going to do to my blood sugar? And I'm not talking unhealthy food. I'm talking all food, all food, right? Mm-hmm. So all food, not just carbs, protein can raise my blood sugar, high fat can raise my blood sugar. So I spent three months with my type one patients. I do a weekly zoom with them for three months. It's my, you know, type one diabetes nuts and bolts of everything you need to know. And 
a lot of patients have had diabetes for decades and they come to me and they learn more in three months than they have in decades. It's a very complicated condition. And if you don't have it, <laughs> be very happy. People just think, oh, you have to do shots. That's so bad. Or, oh, you can't eat sugar. That's so bad. I'm like, well, no, there are endless variables that affect our blood sugar, even beyond food, right? Different cycles, hormonally, PMSing, menopause, stress. If you're super active one day and then underactive next day, if you get sick. Oh, the other thing that raises blood sugar with exercise is adrenaline. So I'll have parents that will be baffled because their kid always goes low, blood sugar low at practice, but then goes high at games. And they're baffled by that. They're like, they're doing the same activity. Why do they have a low at practice and a high at the game? Well, the game initiates what? Tons of adrenaline. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, athletes at the start line, you know, their hearts pumping, their hearts racing, all adrenaline. They're going super high right at the start line. They haven't even started yet. So adrenaline will will raise you too. So it's not just carbs. It's like life that really can affect your blood sugar when you're as sensitive to blood sugar issues as a type one. If you're healthy enough, hopefully, you know, your body can manage all the different variables like hormones and adrenaline and grapes and the banana, right? I mean, there's plenty of people that can eat all that, but that's why having a continuous glucose monitor is important because you don't know. You don't know until you look at the data, look at your own data, you know? Okay. So those out there that either are struggling with type one, or I'm sure someone listening knows someone with type one, mm -hmm. how can you help educate them and inspire them? And what should they do to get some help? Sure. Just visit my website. And to find me, you can just Google the words Dr. Jody and diabetes, but I'll spell out my website as well. And when you Google Dr. Jody Diabetes, my TED Talk comes up, my YouTube channel comes up, my website comes up. So everything that I have out there. My website is actually spelled Dr. Jody N-D. So it's D-R-J-O-D-Y-N as in naturopathic, D as in doctor, dot com. And I have online courses. If people don't want to work with me, they just want to teach themselves. There's really great online courses. Three of them actually that I feel like if any type one would watch these three, they would know more than most endocrinologists. And there is a link to say, work with me. So we would have a little free intro call to see if we're a good fit for working together. So that's the way they can find me. I love it. Okay. Let's finish with a overwhelming one. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that people know there is success in this. And if you get the right help, you can have a happy life essentially, right? So do you have any success stories that meant something to you that you think listeners would love to hear about someone that struggled with type one and got help and maybe how their life changed? Mm, oh gosh, I have so many, so many of my patients. One of them, retinopathy, bleeding in the eyes, pain in her feet. Her average blood sugar level was, I think, above 200. Mm -hmm. And so we went through my three-month program. I taught her so many key, key, key things to learn how to live below 200 and even below 150. I also put on some supplements and her eyes are better, her feet are better. And, you know, she hurt to walk even because the high blood sugar damages nerves, right? Damages circulation. And so your feet can be the first to really suffer when it comes to poor circulation and poor nerve conduction. So her complications reverse quite well. I had another guy, not quite severe, but he came to me, he'd had diabetes, I think for at least a couple decades. So when I take my intake, you know, he tells me what he eats and he says, well, I eat every three hours and sometimes even while I sleep. 
And I said, well, why are you eating so much? And he said, well, I was told that as a diabetic to avoid going low, you have to eat every three hours. And he'd been doing that for years. Mm -hmm. And he simply hadn't learned how to dose his insulin properly. There's no reason why a type 1 diabetic needs to eat unless you dose too much insulin. I did a seven-day water fast. I did not eat a thing for seven days. And I dosed my insulin so low that my blood sugar just stayed flat normal for seven days. So if any time a type 1 goes low, it's a result of too much insulin in their body. And people will say, oh, well, exercise makes me go low. And I'll say, well, only if you have a lot of insulin in your body while you're exercising. I can work out for an hour and not eat anything and not go low because I know how to manage my insulin properly. So it's really knowing how to manage insulin properly to avoid hypoglycemia. In a type 1, there are a lot of people in the masses that say they have hypoglycemic issues. In that case, the only theory I have is potentially they're eating too many carbs, which then initiates a strong insulin response in their body. And then perhaps it overshoots the insulin. So then an hour or two after they eat their high carbs, they're low. So anybody that feels that they have hypoglycemia, I always recommend that, well, let's see how you do when you're really eating a low carb diet, you know, less than 30 grams of low glycemic fiber rich carbs per meal. So that's like maybe 100 carbs a day spread out 30 per meal. And that can help anybody, right, regulate their blood sugar because you're not eating things that spike it, mm -hmm. whether you have hypoglycemia or not. Okay. I love it. Great stories. Tell me, I'm curious, how was it given a TED Talk? Because I've thought about filling out the form and myself going do a TED Talk. How was that? Oh, go do it. Just focus on your gift. Focus on the message. Focus on the impact that you're making. Mm -hmm. Don't think about it as you know anything else. I did hire a coach. I practiced that thing millions of times. Yeah. Any audience in the public that I could find, I mean, <laughs> I went up to people everywhere and, and uh, wow. you know, people like sitting down, having lunch or, you know, and I practiced with my boyfriend. It's almost 6 million views now. So That's it's been amazing. going up about a million a year for the past six years, five years or so. So I put a lot, a lot of time into practicing it and getting feedback, practicing it, getting feedback, practicing, getting feedback. I love it. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. You know, uh, it's called Sugar Is Not a Treat. Sugar. I want to watch it. Yeah, it's on my website. It's also on TED.com. But again, just Google Dr. Jody Diabetes. Wow. So you did it six years ago. I think it was 2018, maybe fall of 18. Yeah, it was like December 12th, 2017 when it was uploaded. So I don't know if that was the exact date. Oh, okay. So it was fall of 17. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. For sure. 17. Sugar is not a treat. I like the title. Thanks. Yeah, because it drives me nuts how everybody's like, here, here's a treat. Here's a treat. Oh, oh here, kids. Kids, here's a treat. Here's a treat. And we're feeding kids this. And we're feeding kids at the birthday party, at the lunch, and at the soccer practice. And I'm like, this is killing you people. This is all making you type 2 diabetics. And it's yep. making you feel awful. And, you know, it's so sad to me how our society has embraced this sugar-laden diet as normal. Mm -hmm. it's horrible. And it's like the only way you can celebrate something is with sugar. I mean, yeah. it makes me cringe inside when I'm at my kids sporting events and parents are just bringing cupcakes and donuts after and the crap they're giving them during the game. And I'm just like, Oh my God, what are y'all doing? Yeah. And I, I mean, I love my parents, but they're so guilty of it. Like I just got home and they, 
they like, we're going to go get the kids a snowball. We want to bring them dessert tonight. They bring this big donut. And then the next day we want to make French toast. And I'm just like, why, why, why is that like your love language that you have to give the kids so much freaking sugar? Like, Oh, it kills me. It kills me. Well, so I pulled up some research. Let me just tell you the health consequences of a high sugar diet. Let's go. 15-year study, people who were getting around 20% of their calories from added sugar. So we're not talking about anything from nature. We're talking about added sugar, all the the sugar that, I mean. Yeah, the brown rice syrup, the, yeah. Yeah, high fructose corn syrup, even just, you know, sugar and all the drinks, right? Just whatever. 20% of calories from added sugar had a 38% higher risk of dying from cardiovascular disease compared to those who consumed under... 10%. 10%. So mm-hmm. even that going from 10 to 20 added almost 40% higher risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. And so Harvard Health says too much added sugar can be one of the greatest threats to one's cardiovascular health. Too much sugar has been correlated also, obviously, with weight gain, obesity, and everything that comes with that, high triglycerides, high cholesterol, acne, some cancers, esophageal, small intestine, endometrial, higher risk of depression, anxiety, mood swings, neurotransmitter dysregulation. It can feel addictive, and then you're feeling like an addict, thinking about it all the time, always wanting more, needing more with each hit. Accelerated skin aging drains energy, right? As I talked about, that spike followed by the drop, fatty liver disease, dental cavities, accelerated cognitive decline, increased risk of Alzheimer's, and of course, poorly controlled diabetes, which means high blood sugars for years, leads to kidney failure, lower limb amputations, blindness, heart attacks, strokes. So this is not, this is not a treat. This is not a celebration. This is an assault to your body, right? This is an assault to your body. It is. And so for everybody listening, like, hello, this is your wake up call that it's okay if you're the parent bringing little Mm -hmm. hot dogs with some mustard to celebrate as opposed to, I mean, even pizza has sugar in it. It's really sad how normalized our diet has become. And so hopefully everybody listening can just take a moment, step back, evaluate what it is you're doing. Are you doing the best thing for your body? Are you honoring your body? What are your kids eating? It's important because if you don't take the time to help your body today, you're going to be forced to take the time when you're sick. So mm-hmm. you have a choice. And for everyone listening, go find Dr. Jody. We're going to link your website, your Instagram, and your TED Talk all beneath the podcast. But... I appreciate you sharing your story so much. And for those listening that struggle with type one, reach out to Dr. Jody and she can help you. Thanks for having me on, Jen. This was great. Of course. Thank you so much. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wake Up and Read the Labels. If you like this episode, guess what? We want you to share it. We'd love that. Share it with a friend and leave us a review. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or really wherever you're listening to your podcast. For more information, visit us at wakeupandreadthelabels.com.